the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we're going to talk with author Michelle Van Loon. Her book is Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Tori Whiting, a trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the fact that the EU trade war has been avoided, well, at least for now. And we'll talk with Kristen and Danny Adams. They are Laughter is the Best Medicine, and they'll be performing at Date Night PDX. That's coming up this Saturday, the 28th at Rolling Hills Community Church. By the way, if you register online, that's $15. If you uh, if you do so at the door, that's $20. So there's a $5 savings if you register online. Also performing for PDX Date Night is Jim and Carol Shore's Acts of Renewal. You can find out more about both of them and the event itself at datenightpdx.org. But they'll be joining us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, breaking news just moments ago from Vice President Mike Pence. He delivered a warning to Turkish President uh, Erdogan saying the United States will impose sanctions until Pastor Andrew Brunson is released. Uh, The vice president delivered the warning on behalf of President Trump at the first ever ministerial to advance religious freedom hosted by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The vice president addressed violations of religious freedom in various nations from the persecution of Catholics in Nicaragua to the targeting of Yazidis in the Islamic State, affirming the United States commitment to fight for universal religious freedom. The vice president asserted that one victim of religious persecution who could not be present at the ministerial should also be honored. Andrew Brunson, the pastor. He is still not free. And to President Erdogan and the Turkish government, I have a message on behalf of the president of the United States of America. Release Pastor Andrew Brunson now or be prepared to face the consequences, Pence said. If Turkey does not take immediate action to free this innocent man of faith and send him home to America, the United States will impose significant sanctions on Turkey until Pastor Andrew Brunson is free. Well, the president reiterated that warning on Twitter, saying the United States will impose large sanctions on Turkey for their longtime detainment of Pastor Andrew Brunson, a great Christian family man and wonderful human being. He is suffering greatly. This innocent man of faith should be released. Well, uh, Pastor Brunson is a pastor from North Carolina who has been ministering in Turkey for over 20 years, has been imprisoned in Turkey since October of 2016. Authorities in Turkey arrested him shortly after the failed coup in July of 2016, initially without charges. They later charged him with espionage and accused him of membership and an aiding of um, and rather of aiding an armed Islamic terrorist group. Turkish authorities refused to release Brunson from prison in three successive hearings but released him from prison into house security or house arrest on Wednesday. The vice president acknowledged the development, demanded, but rather demanded that Brunson's uh, freedom be made full. Yesterday, he said Turkey released Pastor Brunson from prison only to place him under house arrest. This is a welcome first step, but it is not good enough. He said at the ministerial, I spoke to uh, Pastor Brunson and his wife, Maureen, yesterday. I know that his faith will sustain him, but it shouldn't have to. Pastor Andrew Brunson deserves to be free. I 
I promise you, as I told your father yesterday, President Trump and I will continue to fight to secure your father's full release until he is restored to your family and returns to the United States of America to believe uh, believers across America. He uh, said to Brunson's family before delivering uh, the president's warning to Erdogan. Well, the uh, senior uh, uh, Brunson is uh, has maintained his innocence rather throughout his ordeal and argued that it is unreasonable to assert that he as a Christian pastor would aid an Islamist movement or engage in militant espionage. Um, uh, One um, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy argued the indictment against Brunson, which alleged alleges rather not only that he committed espionage against Turkey, but also aided the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK and Gulen's followers has no basis in any credible evidence or witness accounts. Prosecution has relied on the testimony of three secret witnesses. And according to um, the attorney, a convicted murderer, Trump also uh, ridiculed the allegation that Brunson was a spy, saying, in a tweet, they call him a spy, but I am more of a spy than he is. Well, the attorney asserted that Erdogan is simply using Brunson as a political pawn, saying the Turkish government has no intentions of providing Pastor Brunson a fair trial. Uh, and going on to say that Ankara sees Brunson as a hostage that they can use as leverage in their relations with the United States. Well, this was a, a new development. It broke just moments ago. Again, the vice president calling on uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, to let Pastor um, Brunson go, and we'll continue to follow this developing story. Well, a group of House Republicans was introduced, uh, has introduced articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. They've had some pushback. The Speaker of the House says no. Uh, President Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, secretly recorded a conversation with CNN's Chris Cuomo and admitted to deciding on his own to pay uh, uh, Stormy Daniels, according to one report. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo battled both Democratic and Republican lawmakers in uh, on Russia and NATO in a tense hearing on Wednesday, insisting President Trump has been tougher on the Kremlin than previous administrations. And President Trump announced a new phase in the relationship between the United States and the European Union on both sides as they agree to a ceasefire in the growing trade war. And the Trump administration faces a deadline on Thursday to reunite migrant children with their families. Well, lawmakers moved to impeach Rosenstein, although they have had some pushback. A group of 11 House Republicans introduced five articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein on Wednesday. The filing accuses him of intentionally withholding documents and information from Congress, failure to comply with congressional subpoenas, and abuse of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was not immediately clear whether the House of Representatives would consider the resolution before lawmakers began their August recess this afternoon. It was not taken. Up. That answers that question. The House will reconvene on September 4th. The articles were introduced by Representatives Mark Meadows of North Carolina and Jim Jordan of Ohio, the chairman and a prominent member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. In an exclusive interview, um, Meadows said it would be possible to affect a so-called privileged resolution on impeaching uh, Rosenstein as early as Thursday morning. That didn't happen, which would require a vote within two days, although the impending House recess uh, would likely delay that vote unless it were held quickly. Both Meadows and Jordan told uh, uh, reporters the effort was long overdue. Michael Cohen, President Trump's former lawyer, secretly recorded a conversation with CNN's Chris Cuomo and admitted in the taping to arranging on his own 
the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels in 2016. The Wall Street Journal reported late yesterday, citing unnamed sources. The recording, which is about two hours long, included topics ranging from the alleged years-old affair with the former uh, pornographic star to the payment, the report said. The reported tape could potentially be used by the White House to distance the president from the Daniels payment and damage Cohen's reputation. Cohen reportedly assured Cuomo that he was not taping their conversation, which of course he did, and put the phone in his desk drawer. The phone appears to record the whole conversation. I did it on my own, Cohen said about the payment in the recording, according to the journal. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo clashed with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle during a tense Senate hearing on Wednesday as he took a firm line on Russia amid criticism that the administration has been soft on Russia. The hearing marked the administration's highest profile chance to address the sustained criticism over last week's summit between President Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, Finland. Pompeo declared that the U.S. would never recognize the Kremlin's annexation of Crimea and threatened severe consequences for any future meddling in America's election. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker sharply criticized the Helsinki meeting rather at the opening of the hearing, saying the White House has a ready fire aim approach and is waking up every morning and making it up as they go. In a dramatic moment, Corker pressed Pompeo to explain what he characterized as Trump's purposeful efforts to sow misinformation and discord. Pompeo responded that Trump has had a direct role in the administration's aggressive actions against Russia, saying this administration has been tougher than previous administrations on Putin. As the Secretary of State battled lawmakers, the Trump administration announced it was putting off the proposed follow-up fall summit between the presidents of Russia and the U.S. until 2019. National Security Advisor John Bolton cited Special Counsel Robert Mueller's witch hunt, using his words, investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election as the reason for the delay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding through some of the top stories of the day. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Michelle Van Loon, author of Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump announced that he has secured major trade concessions from European Union officials as part of an effort to head off a trade war between the U.S. and the EU. We'll talk more in detail about that in the five o'clock hour. After talks at the White House with EU officials, the president announced in a joint Rose Garden appearance on Wednesday with European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker uh, that the delegation had agreed to increase imports of soybeans and liquefied natural gas. Both sides agreed to work toward the goal of zero tariffs and subsidies on non auto industrial goods and to resolve recent tariffs that uh, both sides have imposed. Trump said officials are looking to reduce bureaucratic obstacles, work toward reform of the World Trade Organization and limit unfair market practices. We had a big day, a very big day, the president said. We set our we set out rather to launch a new phase of close friendship between the United States and the European Union, strong trade relationships where both of us will win. Junkar said that as long as negotiations are ongoing, we will hold off on further tariffs and reassess existing tariffs on steel and aluminum.
Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen has told members of Congress that the government is on track to meet Thursday's uh, court-ordered deadline of reuniting hundreds of migrant children with their families. Lawmakers who met privately with her told the Associated Press her claim was greeted with open disbelief and anger, according to many of the roughly 20 members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, all Democrats who attended. A federal judge has given the administration until today to reunite 2,551 separated children ages 5 and older. The Justice Department said in a court filing on Monday that 1,187 children had been reunited with parents, sponsors, and guardians by the Health and Human Services Department Office of Refugee Resettlement. Still, the private hour-long meeting seemed to achieve little toward dousing lawmakers' criticism of how children taken from their parents are being handled. Nielsen told the group, I am not a racist, according to two lawmakers. One of them, Representative Louise Gutierrez, a Democrat from Illinois, said she made the remark after he told her she worked for a racist regime. In an interview with Fox News' Brett Baer on Tuesday, Nielsen said authorities were mainly concerned about the welfare of the migrant children and family reunions were in part up to the parents. We really want to protect the children, Nielsen added, so we don't want to to cut corners. We want to make sure they're going with a parent. We want to make sure they're going with someone that won't cause them any harm. Well, in an exclusive, um, Roseanne Barr, the embattled television star, will uh, join Sean Hannity tonight. Uh, for her first televised interview since ABC fired her over her t- uh, racist tweet directed toward former Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett. She has since said she didn't know Jarrett was African-American. Hannity announced the exclusive uh, interview on his show on Tuesday. Barr is expected to discuss the tweet that led to her firing, ABC's decision, and her ardent support of President Trump. The 65-year-old actress comedian has expressed her disagreement with ABC's decision, arguing she didn't know the Iranian-born Jarrett is African-American. Don't miss the exclusive uh, tonight if you're interested in hearing from Roseanne Barr for the first time. On this day in 2002, the Republican-led House voted 295 to 132 to create the Homeland Security Department and the biggest government reorganization in decades. And on this day in 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. In 19, rather, in 1775, the Continental Congress established a post office and appointed Benjamin Franklin its postmaster general all happened on this day years ago. Well, some are questioning whether or not the president has uh, gotten his desired results from tariffs. As I mentioned, we'll uh, talk more about this later in the program with my uh, guest, Tori Whiting, who is a trade economist. Uh, We saw an example of what is widely touted as his greatest strength, negotiating a good deal. Now, following his meeting with the European Commission president uh, and his top trade official, uh, the president announced an agreement that effectively avoids a trade war, at least with the EU for now. And there's a A lot of attention being focused on that. And again, we'll address it later in today's program. Meanwhile, a group of 11 House Republicans introduced five articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. That was Wednesday night. Now, the House is since recessed. And in the interim, House Speaker Paul Ryan today publicly opposed the conservative-led bid to impeach the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, saying their accusations don't rise to the necessary level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Although that standard has been thrown around so it's uh, unclear whether or not the Constitution really matters and how it defines the offense. He went on to say, I don't think we should 
uh, be cavalier with this process. He told reporters when asked about the newly introduced articles of impeachment. The speaker's comments splashed cold water on the impeachment push after the articles were filed on Wednesday night, though there are already signs conservatives were dialing back the push and want to use the threat more to pressure the Justice Department to produce documents pertaining to the Russian probe more than move forward uh, with that accusation. Well, Americans and much of official Washington are focusing intently on Russian hacking of our elections, but maybe they should be worried about what if is perhaps the more important Russian cyber hacking target, our nation's utilities and energy infrastructure. Well, it might not sound too interesting, but the threat is real, as the Department of Homeland Security officials on Tuesday in a press conference indicated. They noted that Russian hackers have already hit hundreds of targets in the U.S. energy sector starting in 2016 and continuing into last year. Well, how serious are the cyber attacks? Well, they got to the point where they could have thrown switches, causing power outages, according to uh, Jonathan Homer, the Department of Homeland Security Chief of Industrial Control System Analysis. That is, they could have turned the lights out for many people, uh, wreaking havoc and causing losses of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So it's no joke. Well, that's not the limit of what the mischief they might do. This is a continuation, by the way, of President Trump's discussion uh, last or rather decision last March to blame Russia for what Reuters called a campaign of cyber attacks against the U.S. grid. Does Russia plan something bigger? Are these mere probing attacks that will lead to a wider campaign? We don't know. But it's clearly Russia, according to U.S. officials. Department of Homeland Security officials say the hackers worked for a Russia entity known as Dragonfly or Energetic Bear. And it wasn't just utilities that were targeted, although uh, that's what currently most uh, concerns DHS officials. As reported in March of this year, they also tried to hack nuclear, commercial businesses, water, aviation, and even factories. What's most alarming, many of the utility sites they attack were so-called islands, that is, they had no direct link to the Internet. So how did the hackers get in? They targeted small commercial contractors that do business with utilities. To do so, they used malware, programs that include phishing programs that merely require a victim to click on an email for their computer to become infected. Once the hackers penetrate a targeted company, software, or even manage to uh, plant a program on technicians' thumb drives, it's a short step to gaining access to the utility that they work with. They also do things, the DHS report warns, such as downloading innocent-looking photos from public relations and human resource pages on its company's website. Using high-resolution images, they're able to discern control system equipment models and status information in the background, all from publicly available materials. Well, given such threats, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission said on Tuesday it will now require utilities to report any attempt by hackers to attack their computer and industrial systems. That's a change from the old rule, which only required companies to report if it compromised or disputed operations. Uh, Meanwhile, utility executives say the U.S. Defense Department already has an extensive ability to respond in kind to that kind of cyber attack. And Ohio GOP Representative Jim Jordan, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, announced today that he plans to mount an anti-establishment run for Speaker of the House, presuming Republicans keep control of the chamber. And that's a big if at this point. Should the American people entrust us with a majority again in the 116th Congress, I plan to run for Speaker of the House to bring real change to the House of Representatives, Jordan said in a statement. He added President Trump has taken bold action on behalf of the American people. Congress has not held up its end of the deal, but we 
we can change that. It's time to do what we said. A Jordan aide said the lawmaker sent a letter to colleagues announcing his campaign. Uh, and Jim Jordan has been embroiled in some controversy, or at least an attempt at controversy involving his work at the university level, uh, which I'm certain will play into opposition uh, those who oppose him generally and certainly as the next Speaker of the House, should the Republicans retain the majority. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Michelle Van Loon. Her book, Born to Want. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that we're often asked the question, where are we, where are you going? It's a question that comes up every day, and being asked to answer this question every day can be something of a challenge. The question calls on you to consider your identity beyond heritage or past experience. Well, in her book, Born to Wander, Michelle Van Loon, she shows readers that everyone is a wanderer and that this can be a good thing. We're restless, whether we've lived in the same house for decades or we've lived out of a suitcase traveling the globe. Our default setting is that of an exile, and we often live out, that, live out of that experience. Ms. Van Loon, she explains that exile is not meant to be a destination of our lives. God intends to turn us into pilgrims. A wanderer has no aim, and exile has a home, and there are other differences as well. Well, in her book, she offers thoughtful biblical insights, so readers are left with a clearer sense of who they are and where they're going, even when it feels as though they might be traveling without a map. Born to Wander is a book about the, dis- the uh, disciples' imperfect journey toward growing trust in a Savior who is committed to guiding us homeward. Well, my guest um, is, uh, uh, since coming to faith in Christ at the uh, tail end of the Jesus movement, Michelle Van Loon's Jewish heritage, spiritual hunger, and storyteller sensibilities have shaped her faith uh, journey and informed her writing. She is the author of five books and a regular contributor to Christianity Today's women's blog, In Touch Magazine, and is the co-founder of theperennialgen.com, a website for midlife women and men. She's married to Bill and is the mother of three and the grandmother of two. She joins us today to talk about her book, Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. What are some of the common ways that people experience wandering? Well, I think all of us, are wanderers in one area or another. For some of us, it's our family. Divorce, death, dysfunction drive us apart from one another. Others recognize exile in our culture. If we are a minority group that's experienced systemic injustice or unholy discrimination and find ourselves on the outside looking in, we can understand ourselves in terms of exile. Some of us find exile because the place that's supposed to be a haven in a community of love and welcome, our local church, has instead left us feeling like outcasts. And I'd be remiss if I did not also note right now in the world, estimates have the number at over 65 million refugees, asylum seekers, or internally displaced people who are existing somewhere else than home Mm -hmm. in the world. So our experience, it it may be personal, it may be being part of a group, it may be cultural, but all of us um, can pretty easily connect with the idea of what it is to be an exile. 
In Born to Wander, you use the terms wanderer, exile, and pilgrim. What do each mean, and is it important for us to recognize the distinction? They do sound like they have some overlap, but um, I define in the book that an exile is someone who's been sent or banished from their homeland. They've been forced out. A pilgrim is someone who's journeying toward a sacred destination. They are going somewhere. They're not fleeing from somewhere. And a wanderer is somebody who seems to be traveling without a purpose or a focus. You know, that the person who's taken to the road to have a big adventure, that kind of thing. That's the picture we have. But um, in our wandering, um, God has a purpose. In our exile, God has a purpose. And pilgrimage is, is it. We are sometimes used to adopting the idea of being in exile and um, kind of wrapping ourselves in that. But if you look in scripture, that's never the destination. Always exile is meant to turn us into pilgrims. And the journey along the way is is much of what you write about. How do we uh, identify where we're going and what label fits us at a a particular time? You Mm -hmm. also make the point that... um, uh, that we oftentimes misuse the, the 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 terms contentment and discontent, and as we're journeying, it's important for us to to understand those words in the context of our Christian faith. Can you clarify what mistakes we tend to make and what we ought to understand about these important w- w- words? Sure. Oh, sure. I I describe in the book. I've spent more than four decades in suburban church culture where I hear the word contentment used. A lot. Um, it can be um, kind of a form of sacrifice in responding to a consumer culture kind of want. For example, I wanted to remodel my kitchen, but God is helping me to learn to be content with a new glass tile backsplash instead. <laughs> I've, I've also heard contentment used as Christians speak to broadcast ambition while also showing that we're humble. For example, I believe I'm called to be in charge of women's ministries in this church someday, but right now I'm content just teaching the toddler Sunday school class. Ooh, I love those kids. (laughs) We we say contentment, but I don't know if we really get what it means. In 1 Timothy 6.6, we hear godliness with contentment is great gain. So I suspect that Paul, who penned these words to his young friend Timothy, would be very confused by the way that we use contentment. The Greek word here means that the person is resting in a place of safety and security in their lives. The context for this verse is a discussion of the greed of false teachers and the lure of our own desires for more. Godly contentment says enough instead of sprouting Christianized versions of I want more. So I appreciate the the irony of Paul saying godly contentment is the only more for which we should be aiming. Yeah, (laughs) such (laughs) such wisdom there. Now, (laughs) how does being a transient or an exile, as you've defined it a moment ago, affect a person's identity and how important is Uh, self-identity in this process of journeying? 
Well, I think we are, we're used to defining ourselves. All of us do. Um, we use a lot of mirrors around us to kind of answer the question of who we are. Um, maybe the physical, our appearance, our gender. Others may find that identity resides in our ethnicity, in our network of relationships, in our affiliation with a church or our place in culture. Some say that our identity is formed by what we do, our work, our earning potential, our hobbies, our passions. Some define themselves or find their identity in their ethics. We're defined by what moral choices we make and which ones we issue. Our sense of self takes a beating when we experience failure or face the severing of a meaningful relationship. We're disoriented when we lose our jobs or our kids leave the nest. And we are fragmented um, into thousands of pieces by the rapidly changing culture around us because we, we use those mirrors to say, this is who we are and this is where we're going. They may be part of what God uses to answer the question of identity, but they are not reliable reflectors of eternal truth. Now, um, how how does Jesus' command to follow me impact a Christian's direction and identity as a wanderer or as a pilgrim? Do we do we fully appreciate and understand what Jesus meant when he told us when he tells us to follow him? Well. I, I've been a believer for more than four decades, and I am still figuring that out. I'm still <laughs> seeking to answer that question. I do hear some well-meaning people saying things like, discover your destiny, pursue your dreams, claim your promises. And we use slogans sometimes to kind of uh, make sense of faith. It kind of waters it down in a way that makes it a little easier to swallow, and it, it looks more sometimes like an American dream than the kind of journey that Jesus had in mind for his followers. He's the one who said, I have no place to lay my head. He told, he told his followers, come after me. He, he didn't, there were no loopholes in that language. So sometimes the pursuit of worldly success baptized in Bible-sounding language, passes in many quarters for how to understand our identity in Christ. There was no fame and fortune bait on the hook when Jesus told Peter he was going to make him a fisher of men. There was no promise of celebrity when God spoke to Abram and told him to leave the comforts of home and family. Both men's lives and the lives of most others highlighted in the Bible became less comfortable and far more uncertain after God called them. We're talking with uh, Michelle Van Loon. Her book is titled Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, the book we're talking about, Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. Michelle Van Loon is our guest. She's her Jewish heritage, spiritual hunger, and storytelling sensibilities have been informing her writing and shaping her faith journey since she came to Christ at the tail end of the Jesus movement. She's the author of five books. She's been a regular contributor at Christianity Today's women's blog and In Touch magazine. She's the co-founder of the... Um, perennialgen.com, a website for midlife men and women. And we talked a moment ago about um, what it means to um, have a, a transient or an exile uh, kind of a background and how that impacts your identity. What does it mean to have an identity as a pilgrim? As change goes through our culture, I mean, if we're honest, I no matter where we are, or who we are in this culture, I think we're all feeling whiplashed by the rapid changes and the the challenges that are before us all. And I think as a result of that, there's been kind of a, a trend in in some parts of the church to encourage believers to embrace their status as exiles and outsiders. And the language is not without context in scripture. In John 17, 14 through 19, Jesus emphasizes that we're to live in the world and not be of it. 1 Peter 2.11 reminds us that we're citizens of the kingdom. We're not bound by the world's ways. However, scripture is consistent from beginning to end to tell us that exile is never meant to be the destination for God's people. Exile is always meant to transform us into pilgrims. Even if it feels like we're journeying without a tidy map um, and we are not quite sure, you know, how to navigate what's around the bend because we've never been there before, God is always calling us to follow him in faith in the darkness at at times. Um, Pilgrims recognize that the desire for self-preservation that's embedded in hiding or culture warring or settling are not the marks of a follower of Jesus. Courage, confession, faithfulness, and love always mark a pilgrim's life and actions. You write about holy remembering. What does it mean and why is it important? That is an intriguing term, isn't it? Yes. It's it's not a navel-gazing kind of retrospective look at our own experiences you know, cherishing every precious bit of them um, or engaging in kind of sentimental nostalgia over the past. Holy remembering includes reflection about who we are, where we've been, a, a, a frank assessment as much as it's possible of our strengths and weaknesses, and an acknowledgement of the gifts we've been given by God by which we serve others. But the Bible also tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, we can't know ourselves fully. So it's a given that we will not remember any of these things about ourselves with full clarity, even as we affirm that God knows every thought in our mind and every hair on our heads. The kind of remembering that God calls us to has to do with our relationship with him. The Hebrew word for remember is zakar which captures the way in which God is bound to his covenant people. He remembers this relationship 
every millisecond of all of eternity. He never forgets and it never changes. He remembers perfectly. Because he remembers, he acts on behalf of his people for their good in everything he does, whether it's in blessing or in discipline. His love is expressed in the way that he remembers us. So when he calls us to remember him, we become more fully the people we are created to be. And that is not connected to our place and culture or our likes and our dislikes, our relationships, our failures and our victories. We can see this kind of remembering, the kind of remembering that kind of wakes us up to who we are in what I think is one of the saddest psalms in in the entire book of Psalms, which is Psalm 137. It's It's words of people that are preparing to go back to Israel after being exiled in Babylon. And the the language is, it begins by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And it goes on and on to, to remember in the face of people mocking them, their captors mocking them, of realizing how very far from home they are, and just a deep sense of grief. But that remembering, that true remembering, is what transformed them from living as exiles to being able to be pilgrims and to return home. They were not the same people that they were when they left the promised land and were marched into captivity, but they became pilgrims and they were the kind of people that God was calling home in faith onward and forward. In your description of pilgrimage, you write about thin places. Uh, explain what that means. It's, that phrase is familiar to anybody that maybe has studied um, ancient Celtic spirituality. They would use that kind of language to say, this is a spot on earth where heaven seems especially near. Now, we know that God is present everywhere at all times, but we also see in Scripture that there are specific sites and times that God designated to meet with his people. Moses at the burning bush in the desert, or at Mount Sinai as he gave Moses the law, or at the tabernacle, um, the Holy of Holies, when the temple was standing, um, and they were called together, all the people were called together together to a specific place to worship at specific times and in a specific way. And even though they were all living back when the temple was standing and, and there was some sense of security in the land during David and Solomon's reign, they had the experience, even when they were home, of being called into pilgrimage three times a year to go to that temple, to that thin place, that sacred spot, and gather as one to worship. So even when they were home, there was still a reminder to them that they were pilgrim people. One of the things you write about is um, being a pilgrim in place. We think of movement and journey and progress. What do you mean by a pilgrim in place, and why is this an important concept for us to understand? 
I, I think that there are people who may hear this kind of talk and think, well, I've lived in the same house my whole mm-hmm. life and gone to the same church. And how does that, what does this have to do with me? They value the the familiarity, but I think that there are people who can pilgrim in place, sometimes staying put in a church or in a home is far more difficult than leaving one. Let's say you're in a church that's going through a, a, a period of transition or division. Sometimes pilgriming in place is what creates a pilgrim out of somebody who is content to settle, to, to be able to stand and to seek God where you are and to follow him faithfully, again, does not have so much to do with um, a particular zip code as it does a state of being in a relationship with God as a disciple. I began our conversation by making the point that answering the question, where are you going, can be a difficult one, but it's important for us to be able to answer. As we end our conversation, um, why is it so difficult for us and why is it so important that we answer that question rightly? In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells a religious leader who wants to become his disciple, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's in Matthew 8, 20. Just as Jesus called this man to unsettle himself and embrace a life of pilgrimage, he calls us to this on the same journey. The, the point of his words is that those who are really comfortable have no incentive to follow him. Nor are those who've wrapped ourselves so firmly in the identity of an exile from the world that we've learned to hide and we've kind of just tried to avoid a world that we really don't like. When we seek excess comfort or indulge excess fear, we can't answer the question. We can't answer we can't respond to Jesus when he says follow me. That following even if we're not exactly sure where he's leading us, it's a very powerful compass that leads us to him. The the fourth century saint Augustine said, "You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you." And so when someone asks me, where am I going? I've moved a lot. I've been in lots of places. But I can say that that my restlessness is the compass that continues to guide me to seek to follow God. I was born again to wander. The book, once again, is titled Born to Wander, Recovering the Value of Our Pilgrim Identity. You certainly are a articulate storyteller, and I hope our our listeners will pick up the book. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. It's been great being with you. By the way, the book is uh, published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. In this hour, we're going to talk with Tori Whiting. She's a trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the EU trade war that has been averted, well, at least for now. And we'll talk with Kristen and Danny Adams. They are Laughter is the Best Medicine. They're going to be performing at Date Night PDX this Saturday, July the 28th at Rolling Hills Community Church 
in Tualatin. Uh, by the way, if you register online, you'll get a $5 discount. It's $15 per person online, $20 at the door. Also, Jim and Carol Shore's Acts of Renewal will be uh, performing uh, on uh, Date Night Seed uh, Date Night PDX. Uh, you can get more information and register online at datenightpdx.org. They'll be joining us at the bottom of this hour. Well, the America, the U.S. is anticipating that North Korea will return to the remains of some 55 American service members on Friday, which is the 65th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended fighting in the Korean War, according to a U.S. official. The official noted that the return is not certain until the U.S. plane set to retrieve the remains departs from the northeastern city of Wonsan with those remains. The return of the American remains lost in the Korean War was a major commitment by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to President Trump at their summit in Singapore last month. The remains, if it goes well, would be flown to the U.S. air base of Osan in South Korea, where they would uh, be cataloged and then flown to a Hawaii processing center next Wednesday. Earlier this week, an American research group reported that North Korea had begun dismantling its main missile engine test site, which could be another sign that a thaw is taking place between two countries. Others are saying not so fast. Days later, the U.S. moved about 100 caskets to the DMZ in anticipation of the handover of the remains, but the transfer uh, never took place. That was in June. Pentagon officials say that they had expected to accept as many as 200 sets of remains, rather, from North Korea within days at that time. Well, North Korean officials were also no-shows earlier this month for a meeting with the U.S. regarding the remains of Korean War dead, but U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo downplayed that snub, telling reporters before leaving Pyongyang that the meeting could move by um, one day or two. So we'll see what actually happens, but that's the uh, uh, the expectation if, in fact, they succeed. Well, the medical examiner's office in New York reportedly revealed Wednesday that they've identified the remains of a man killed in the World Trade Center attack on 9-11-2001. Uh, developments in DNA analysis technology finally allowed Mark Desire, the assistant director of forensic biology at the medical examiner's office, and his team to identify a bone as belonging to Scott Michael Johnson, 26. Johnson is the 1,642nd victim to be positively identified in the terror attacks in which 2,753 people were killed by hijackers who crashed airplanes into the Twin Towers. Johnson was reportedly an employee for the investment banking company Keith Bryett and Woods on the 89th floor and of one of the towers through the years several attempts to identify the bone proved unsuccessful until recent improvements allowed the team to gain sufficient DNA evidence to make a match after learning of the development Ann Johnson told the outlet that she and her daughter sat there and both cried you get pulled right back into it and it also rem- means there's finality, she said. Somehow I always thought he would just walk up and say, here I am. I had amnesia. Well, that will not happen. And, of course, when they say they've identified the remains, it's not the full uh, remains of an individual. It is a part, a, a leg bone, but it is at least something that identifies him as having been there and died. Well, the Trump administration today uh, said that more than 700 children separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border remain apart hours before a court-imposed deadline 
to reunify them took place. In a court filing, the Justice Department said 1,820 children ages 5 and up have been discharged from the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Of those, 1,442 were reunited with their parents in the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, while another 378 were released in other appropriate circumstances. A federal judge had given the administration until the end of today to reunite more than 2,500 separated children with their parents, guardians, or other sponsor. The separations took place under the president's so-called zero-tolerance border policy, which called for criminal prosecution of anyone caught crossing the U.S. border illegally. The administration said that 711 separated children had parents or guardians who are either not eligible for reunification or not available for discharge at this time. Of those children, 431 are listed as having parents outside the United States. Another 120 had parents who waived reunification, while an additional 173 had parents Parents who were released to the interior or whose location was under case review, a case file review. A Justice Department spokesperson said that the government would meet the court deadline, saying the expected total number of eligible potential class members in ICE custody seeking to be reunited uh, who will not have been reunited by the end of the day is zero. That's being challenged by the ACLU and others, suggesting that parents were coerced into signing documents that release their children from reunification and others uh, questioning the motives of the administration. Uh, Not uh, not altogether surprising. An attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union who represented the separated families said the government should not be congratulating itself for meeting a self-defined deadline, saying these parents and children have lost valuable time together that can never be replaced. We're thrilled for the families who are finally reunited, but many more remain separated. The administration is trying to sweep them under the rug by unilaterally picking and choosing who is eligible for reunification. So that's their version of the outcome. Well, here at home, the Oregon Department of Transportation said traffic models show backups as far east as Troutdale due to the closures on the uh, I-84 ramp to I-5 northbound, closing for nearly two weeks. Another phase of the Oregon Department of Transportation's significant summer construction in Portland is underway. The ramp from Interstate 84 westbound to uh, Interstate 5 northbound is closed until the 6th of August. Uh, This is the second ramp closure in the I-5, I-84 interchange this summer. The southbound ramp um, from July 8th through the 23rd uh, ended on the 23rd. In addition to the ramp closure, all on-ramps between I-5 and Northeast 82nd Avenue are also closed. ODOT said traffic models show backups as far east as Troutdale due to the closure. Interstate 205 and Interstate 405 are suggested detours. Prior to this summer's construction, ODOT suggested people walk or bike to work, use public transportation, work from home, or even take a vacation instead of trying to deal with the road uh, pileups. Travelers are going to experience the worst construction delays they've ever seen, or at least in the last 10 years in Portland. An ODOT spokesperson, Kimberly Dinwiddle, said a third closure on the I-84 westbound ramp to I-5 southbound will take place later in August. So it continues. Well, this was a, a bad day for Mark Zuckerberg. We'll tell you more about that as he lost more than $15 billion in a day. Now, that means a lot to you and me, maybe not so much to him, but we'll get into that. And uh, the accusations that, um, in fact, there's some uh, mishandling of information online. We'll get into that and much more when we return. Well, actually, we won't. We're going to talk with Tori. We're not going to get to this today. Yeah, we're going to talk to Tori Whiting in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. When what President Trump called a very big day for free trade and fair trade, he and the leader of the European Union agreed on Wednesday to work to end tariffs on non-automotive products. Well, the European Commissioner, President Jean-Claude Juncker, and the President uh, Mr. Trump, uh, they met at the White House, then went to the Rose Garden to announce not only a ceasefire, but disarmament in what was turning into a trade war. The pair agreed to work together toward zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods. The agreement included resolving the tariffs on steel and aluminum imposed by the uh, Trump administration, which the EU has retaliated against. They identified a number of areas uh, on which uh, to work together. And here to talk with us about that is Tori uh, Whiting, who is a trade economist at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Is it premature to say trade war with the EU averted or at least temporarily on hold while they're working out uh, what we hope will be details to avoid a trade war? Well, what I'd say is that this is a disarmament between the United States and the EU. Right now, they've at least agreed to suspend any additional tariffs, and it looks as though the United States will be dropping the steel and aluminum tariffs against the EU, and the EU will be dropping their retaliation. So that is all well and good. But really, the big news from the announcement yesterday is two things. The first is that the uh, the Trump administration, and the president specifically himself, has decided and has announced that trade is actually a win-win. Um, he said that the EU and the United States can both win if they work together. And that is a big change in rhetoric from the White House. The second part is that in that win-win, they said that if they work together against China, they'll be better off, which, again, huge change in rhetoric, Mm -hmm. but a very positive change. Now, is this, could it be argued that this is part of the president's strategy? This is the art of the deal. You threaten the worst possible scenario in hopes of, Uh, getting something that's favorable to everyone? Well, I mean, it could be said that that's part of the strategy, but in my opinion, threatening our allies to get lower tariffs (laughs) is kind of like like using coercion to extract a confession from someone. You might get the confession, but did you really do it in the right way? Um, So, you know, we in, in in the coercion in this case, the effects of the coercion is 40% higher steel prices for American manufacturers, plummeting futures for agricultural goods, and huge uncertainty in the market um, for the last few months. So um, we really think that we probably could have gotten to this point of setting up a dialogue with the EU in a better way without causing all of that harm. But I'm great to see the I'm happy and optimistic to the administration taking this route. Let's talk about what the pair announced yesterday in suggesting that they are moving toward a tariff-free future. What are some of the areas that they discussed or disclosed in that press conference? Well, the main focus was in non-auto industrial goods. So for the most part, they're leaving agriculture out and they're leaving um, automobile parts and and. and actual automobiles out of the discussion. But, you know, the Heritage Foundation has been advocating for many years for the United States to eliminate all tariffs on intermediate goods, which are what we use to make other things here in America. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if that's where the U.S. and the EU are going, 
then that is a great way to go. It's going to make our manufacturers more competitive in the world market, and it's going to help drive down prices for finished goods for Americans, which everyone loves. So well, that's the way they're going. This is a great first yeah, step. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the Rose Garden event. It was, uh, wasn't was initially on the president's schedule, which suggested that it was contingent on the outcome of talks between the two leaders. But the president, during that conference, that press conference, said that the U.S. and the EU would work to reduce trade barriers and increase trade on chemicals, pharmaceuticals, medical products. And he really drilled down on soybeans, uh, I suppose, in a nod to farmers who are very concerned about the impact the threat of tariffs uh, is having or might have on uh, on their goods. Yes, you're correct. There were some talks about the increase of um, exports to the United States of soybeans and um, liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Now, the thing with those is that those are actually deals that were already in the works prior to this announcement. Mm-hmm. So they're not really anything new. But in general, it's still good, of course, for U.S. producers to be able to export more to markets. Um, but those two announcements were not anything new. They also announced uh, that they were emphasizing the reform of the World Trade Organization, established a joint working group to evaluate tariff measures. Were those also in the works or were, was this a disclosure that was new? No, I'd say this was new. Um, you know, we've been advocating for quite some time for the U.S. to work with its allies instead of attacking its allies in regards to trade. Um, so I think I hope that this move with the EU and wanting to address uh, what they call unfair trade practices, so things like subsidies, state-owned enterprises, overcapacity, et cetera. Um, I'd like to see the U.S. add more countries into this dialogue, um, not just the EU, maybe Canada, Mexico, Japan, Korea, and really start to get a coalition of U.S. allies to work on um, improving China's trade practices. Well, Donald Trump carried a big stick. He made threats, as you described them, uh, that led to this um, this relatively historic meeting between the president and the EU leader. Are you optimistic moving forward that um, ultimately we're going to move toward uh, zero or fewer tariffs and that uh, the president might be able to resolve the conflict with China and others uh, upon whom tariffs have been imposed? Well, I'd say right now, um, like I said at the beginning, we're kind of at this disarmament in the trade war with the EU. But really the devil's in the details to figure out what will actually come of the of this dialogue between the U.S. and the EU. We hope that it will be um, elimination of duties, the eventual zero tariff, zero subsidies, zero non-tariff barriers mantra, which I think is a great goal. But it's going to take time to get there. Um, and just with the EU where it will take time, it's going to take time for the United States to um, improve our relationship with China. But I think that setting up a dialogue and having um, negotiations at the table instead of, um, you know, trade war with rhetoric and tariffs is the best way to go. Yeah, I suppose waterboarding our allies is probably <laughs> not the, the way to go. Exactly. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Have a great one. You too. Tori Whiting is a trade economist at the Heritage Foundation talking about the EU trade war that has been avoided, at least for now. And we can uh, certainly watch with interest um, what happens next. Uh, Tori has written for the Heritage Foundation, pointing out that in March, President Trump said that trade wars are good and easy to win. Uh, The trade wars kicked into gear a week after he uh, made that uh, statement. 
uh, back in, again in March. Tariff-driven price increases and the retaliatory measures taken by other countries are already threatening the livelihoods of thousands of Americans growing daily. American businesses will face increased operation costs. More farmers and ranchers will lose access to their exports and more Americans will lose their jobs. So that's what uh, we're trying to avoid. And uh, again, is this part of the president's strategy? You carry a big stick, you make uh, threats, and you point out the disparity between what the United States uh, uh, brings to bear. The NAFTA, for example, it, it was built in that the United States would uh, carry more of the load than other countries, that we would sort of uh, allow them to benefit where we would uh, would uh, pay the price. Um, is this the strategy of the president, and will it ultimately be successful, not just with the EU, but with other countries uh, with whom we now have a dispute with regard to trade? So we'll continue to follow the story, but um, this was a rather interesting press conference yesterday, and we'll see what happens next. Up next, we're going to talk with Kristen and Danny Adams. They are Laughter is the Best Medicine. In fact, you may have seen their, um, how do you call it, mega viral video? <laughs> it, was, it was more than just viral. It was a mega viral uh, video that really kicked off their ministry. They're going to be a part of Date Night PDX. That's coming up this Saturday at Rolling Hills Community Church. By the way, you can still register online, and the uh, tickets are discounted $15 per person online. That'll be $20 at the door. So you can go to datenightpdx.org to secure your tickets. It all kicks off at 5.40 uh, p.m. on Saturday. And uh, uh, Kristen and Danny Adams are one of uh, two uh, pair of um, comedians, Jim and Carol Shores. They're both uh, married couples. Jim and Sh- uh, Carol Shores are acts of renewal. They're also going to be performing in part of uh, this great night of fun, encouraging and strengthening marriages. So we'll talk with Kristen and Danny Adams about that when they join us in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 32 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, let me ask you a question. When is the last time you had a great date with your spouse? I know things come up. It can be tough. But Date Night PDX is coming up this Saturday to help you in this journey. Well, my next guests, Kristen and Danny Adams, in February of 2017, well, they really made history with a lip-syncing video that they posted on their Facebook page. It went mega viral. It was complete, a complete change uh, for them in their lives. It was viewed by over 300 million uh, viewers. It helped grow their online community to nearly a million people. They're passionate about creating family-friendly online content where God is always Welcome, and they post new videos every Friday, where they're going to be among the presenters at this weekend's Date Night PDX. They're a married couple, and they're making a difference, encouraging others uh, along their journey as well. Kristen and Danny Adams join us today, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. Appreciate it. Yeah. When did the two of you discover, we're funny, we're funny together? <laughs> we're still discovering that. <laughs> You know, I think I think being funny or finding the funny um, is really a heart decision. You know, Danny's always been a happy-go-lucky guy. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with him. Um, for me, laughter has really been something that has has come easier to me the the lighter I've let my heart get, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, I um for me, I kind of had to walk it out, you know, but Danny's been a catalyst in that for me and just a, a game changer and that he's really shown me how to find the funny in life and relationships. And now we're doing it together. Well, one of the things I appreciate about your humor uh, is that it's not just about being funny. There's actually 
there's something behind it. There's something me- more meaningful uh, in, in what you do and just demonstrating the joy of being together. You're going to be a part of uh, Date Night PDX, and you're going to provide some of what you all do uh, for the audience there. Tell us a little bit about why you think it's important to be a part of this event. Well, we were just so honored when they asked us. We love making videos, but we love being in front of live crowds, too. It's, 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 it, we have a good time making these videos together, but it's nothing like, you know, being with um, others and, and seeing their faces and laughing together and praying together after shows and just encouraging each other, like you said in, our, in your intro. That's really what this is all about, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith and stories. And, and, um, and that's really what Danny and I try to do when you said there's something more meaningful behind it. Um, for us, if, if we put out a lip sync video and we get all these followers, um, that's great. But for us, we're just really saying, hey, now that you're here, can we share some truth with you? And yeah. can we just get real with you? And, and so we hope that that's allowed us to earn a place with people to, to go a little deeper and to say some things that um, maybe they haven't heard before. Well, um, Kristen and Danny Adams are going to be performing at Date Night PDX. That's coming up this Saturday at Rolling Hills Community Church. It uh, starts at 540. The doors open at 5. And if you register online, that's going to cost you $15 per person, $20 at the door. Also, Jim and Carol Shores, Acts of uh, Renewal, are going to be performing. Uh, And just a a way of encouraging uh, couples to strengthen their relationship with one another and just have a good time together. It's, It's so much of what we did before we got married. It ought to be a part of life moving forward. Now, the two of you have been involved in performing, and that's sort of how you met. Tell us a bit of your story. Yes, we both lived out in the entertainment world of Los Angeles, California, for about 15 years. And we both went out there pursuing entertainment. Uh, I grew up in a family that that sort of traveled uh, as traveling evangelists and performed through music and comedy. Uh, Kristen uh, was taken out there by American Idol the very first season. Uh, so we met out there in Los Angeles. and uh, We were friends for years and kind yeah. of doing our own separate thing, but just kind of had mutual friends. And um, he, Dan, one of the things Danny did while he was pursuing comedy and acting and yeah. kind of piecemealing work together was he was a personal trainer out there. And I went to him for personal training when we were friends. And if, if anyone knows, uh, you know, like anyone that works in the service industry, you end up just telling them all your stuff, like your hairstylist or your personal trainer. And that's exactly what I did. Only I didn't know we were going to get married. So I wouldn't have told him 90% of the stuff that I told him while we were working out. Um, I, you know, for me, I've really been walking strongly with, with the Lord for just over probably 10 years now. And so early on in our friendship and our dating relationship, he saw like the good, the bad and the ugly of Kristen. And, and, um, and I think that's one of the things that really helped the, 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 the trust factor and the intimacy with us um, as a friend, you know, just as friends um, uh, early on, because we just, you know, Danny was praying for me um, as, as, as his friend. And, and so when we finally turned that page to say, hey, I think there's something deeper here. Let's start dating. Um, we really had a good foundation to work off of. But it got worse before it got better. <laughs> in our relationship uh, because I wasn't really walking with the Lord. Um, you know, you don't have coping methods. Uh, we had a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. We always knew how to laugh together, but we all, we also, um, being very passionate people, um, knew how to say some fiery words too. And um, Danny gets the crazy idea in the midst of our 
dating kind of funk and junk that was happening that we should go to church. And I was like, I don't want to go to church. I grew up in the belt buckle of the Bible belt in Dallas, Texas. I went to church every Sunday, but nothing really changed me like in the week, you know? And so he was like, let's go. So we go. He rededicates his life like right away that Sunday. He starts reading the Bible every day, which is really irritating me. And um, (laughs) I was like, can we, can we ease into this whole like Jesus thing? What are you doing? And, um, and so that was really, he, he stopped fighting with me. He stopped, you know, when I would try to like kind of dig or, or, you know, take a jab at him, like I used to, he just met me with love and, and it just, I, I loved it. And I also hated it at the same time. Because <laughs> that scoundrel. It was, it was exposing my heart, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I had a radical change at a women's conference, um, at that church we were going to. And I think Danny wants to chime in here. Well, I just think that um, kind of going back to what we were doing and, and the passion for entertainment and what took us out there, it was it was really neat to see because God had, when we, when Chris and I first started dating, he had shown me some snapshots of, of us doing exactly what we're doing now, like being a part of PDX this evening, uh, you know, hosting and, and being a part of live events like this, where we're just sharing Jesus and all that he has done in our relationship. And so... He had given me snapshots of that 12 years ago, uh, took a while and took a lot of, uh, uh, you know, not always good times, but, but we, we hung in there. Uh, we just continued to cling to, to Christ through it all. And now we're so humbled to have the opportunity to be used uh, in any capacity to really just talk of his goodness and point people specifically marriages to him yeah. for the answer. Yeah. It's just amazing what God can do with us, you know, the stuff that yes. that's us and uses us in ways to encourage others. How important is dating for the two of you in maintaining a strong marriage relationship? How important is what? Dating. Dating. Like, like oh. dating. <laughs> yeah, it's so important. You know, sometimes, you know, we've got two kids. We we work together, we homeschool, we're we've got we wear a lot of hats, you know, and I think in marriages, you can let busyness um, yeah. get the best, best of you, you know, it's, it's kind of a marriage killer. And, and so that's one thing that we really guard against getting those date nights on the calendar. And if they're not on the calendar, making sure that you have some good eye to eye conversation regularly. Um, and it sounds kind of silly, but you really have to like your you can calendar pages can turn. And it's like, when did we last look, did it sit down and look each other in the eye and have a real conversation and, and talk about things that aren't just scheduling or, yeah. or hey, got to go get this at the grocery store, got to go do that. It's like you've got to be intentional about these date nights and these eye-to-eye conversations and have them regularly. Yeah. yeah, and one thing that we do is if we can't get out, sometimes we just like to sit on the couch, throw on one of our favorite comedians, and laugh together. Yes. And we just know that how important that is to, to laugh and all the – studies behind what laughter does mm-hmm. um, for us it really bonds us together and we find obviously something mutually that we really like and can can laugh at yeah. and so i i just you know would encourage any couple out there um if it's been a while or if it's just part of your regular regimented you know date night get out come to pdx it's going to be a lot of fun we've never worked with acts of renewal but 
what we have seen of them online, they have been doing this for quite some time, and they are just hilarious. They are pros. Yeah, and to have the two couples there at the same stage, that's going to be extraordinary. Well, I would encourage people, if they want to begin to laugh, you might want to check out uh, Kristen and Danny's uh, website. They post every Friday new videos, and you're going to love them. But you can start with uh, showing up at uh, Date Night PDX. That's at Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. This Saturday, uh, things start at 540, but the doors open at 5. It's $15 per person online, $20 at the door. As mentioned, Jim and Carol Shores are also going to be performing Acts of Renewal. And it's just going to be a wonderful time. There's going to be lots of of time to laugh and reflect and just strengthen that relationship that we commit ourselves uh, to remaining in. Now, what's the, the best way for our listeners to find your content online? Because they may want to check you out before they check you out on Saturday. Absolutely. Do your research. We hope you we hope you come. We're at Facebook.com slash Kristen and Danny. And my name's with two eyes. Facebook.com slash Kristen and Danny. We're on Instagram, YouTube. If you just search Kristen and Danny, we will pop up. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are great. We are so delighted that you're going to come and be a part of Date Night PDX. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you Thank for you. having us. God bless you both. Bye-bye. God bless you. Bye. Again, Kristen and Danny Adams, Laughter is the Best Medicine. That's the the name of their ministry. They're going to be a part of Date Night PDX, along with Jim and Carol Shore, Acts of Renewal. And that's coming up this Saturday, Rolling Hills Community Church. If you're thinking, man, we need to get out and do something, let me suggest doing this. Uh, You're going to laugh. You're going to think about things that matter. And you're going to look in one another's eyes and just renew that commitment to spending time together and remember the things uh, that drew you together in the first place. $15 per person online, $20 at the door and you can go to datenightpdx.org for more information. Again, doors open at 5. Everything starts at 5:40. Hope to see you there. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We're going to take a quick break and well, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice show. By the way, today happens to be my niece, Bailey Olivia Rose, it is her 13th birthday. She has crossed over from kiddom to being a teenager. Just want to wish Bailey Olivia a happy birthday. She's an incredible young woman. I guess I have to refer to her as a young woman now. And I just love her to the moon and back. We're going to be celebrating her birthday this evening. And it's been so fun to be her aunt and to watch her grow up uh, to reach her 13th Year She'll be an upperclassman in middle school this year. So looking forward to hearing great things from Bailey Olivia. Happy birthday to you. Well, communist North Korea is one of the most hostile and repressive regimes in the world, particularly when it comes to religious belief and practice, particularly for faiths associated with the Western world. Christianity being among them. According to the 2018 report of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which details the state of religious freedom around the world in 2017. According to that report, the North Korean government views Western faiths and beliefs as a threat and is known to arrest, torture, imprison, and even execute religious believers. Now stop and think about that for a moment. People just like you and I who had a personal encounter with Christ and made the decision that I want to follow him and serve him all the days of my life. And for that reason, and that reason alone, the North Korean government views them and their belief in Christ as a threat 
And they, uh, many of them have been arrested and tortured, imprisoned, and many of them have been executed because they are followers of Jesus. Well, the North Korean regime associates uh, Christianity with the West, particularly the United States, the report said. The regime uses robust surveillance to identify secretly practicing Christians and imprison them and their families, even if their family is not religious. So let's say you're... Uh, the son of parents who are irreligious, you're a follower of Christ. You risk not only uh, being imprisoned yourself, tortured, arrested, and all of those things, but your family may also be caught up in all of that because you're a follower of Christ. How difficult it must be, even if you're attempting to follow Christ secretly, to make that profession of faith. Well, in May of 2017, some Christian defectors informed USCIRF about their life in North Korea. Uh, And there was a report issued at the time. One defector explained that there is only one religion in North Korea, the worship of leader Kim Jong-un. Well, Christians in North Korea are tortured and killed on account of their religious affiliation, uh, states the report. And according to the database Center for North Korean Human Rights, individuals face persecution for propagating religion. That's sharing their faith, as we are commanded in Scripture. Um, uh, possessing religious items, that may be a Bible, it might be a cross, carrying out religious activities, going to church, fellowshipping with others, uh, perhaps even praying uh, by oneself, including singing of hymns, and having contact with religious persons, having fellowship uh, with others who are like-minded, the report documents. In addition, in North Korea, religious groups cannot conduct religious activities unless the activities are through Uh, The handful of state-controlled houses of worship, the report says. Now, what that means, I understand that in China, but in North Korea, I'm not sure what it means to be associated with state-controlled houses of worship. Now, if the only deity that is allowed for worship in that country is Kim Jong-un, then I'm not sure what a state-controlled house of worship might look like, but that's what the report said. There are currently three Protestant churches, one Catholic church, and one Holy Trinity Russian Orthodox church in North Korea. I bring it up because, as you know, the president of the United States is continuing, as well as members of his cabinet, to work with, uh, communicate with, talk with members of uh, North Korea's leadership, including Kim Jong-un, to try to negotiate a peace uh, between the United States and others in the region. In addition to that, many have been calling out for the president, the secretary of state, to um, uh, focus a very bright light on religious persecution in that country. And uh, while we've recently seen the release of the uh, the U.S. pastor who had been in prison for two years uh, without really being charged, being released from prison and released to his home, we're not sure what that disposition will be over the next days, weeks, or months. Um, It is believed by the American Center for Law and Justice that God changed the heart of the king, in this case, Um, the king of uh, the president of Turkey, as well as influence the the heart of the president of the United States, who seemed quite disturbed by this situation. And even in the wee hours of the the morning, uh, made efforts to obtain his release. Uh, We need to be praying for the negotiations between the United States government and North Korea, uh, in addition to the political settlements that might mean the absence of conflict, uh, the uh, version of uh, of war and uh, potentially a, a peaceful or at least a cordial relationship. We need to pray for those who are um, being confined because of their faith, who are being tortured because they're followers of Christ. Because as we know, the scriptures teach us that we are inexorably connected to one another by virtue of our common heritage in Christ. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for believers 
in North Korea. Well, tomorrow, of course, is Friday. And uh, typically on Fridays, we try to turn our attention to the lighter side of the news. And that is our intention tomorrow. Of course, if there is breaking news, we will break in with that. So you can keep it tuned here and make sure that you uh, you know what's happening in the world if there's some, some breaking story. But we're looking forward to turning our attention to some of the lighter side um, of the news. Just want to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, Date Night PDX, of course, is coming up on Saturday. And if you register online, you can save $5 per person. So check that out. Also, a reminder that the petition to stop state funding of abortion in the state of Oregon, those uh, signatures have been submitted to the Secretary of State's office and they are currently being counted. That process takes up to two weeks, perhaps even longer. And uh, we know that they're being um, observed by those who are permitted to stand and watch the process uh, take place. That's going to be another week or so. You might just want to pray about the future of uh, that effort so that uh, we can get this question on the ballot. Uh, In addition to that, a campaign follows. Uh, One might argue, although it's very difficult to collect uh, the hundreds of thousands of signatures that are necessary to place a question on the ballot, the campaign that follows is uh, a much greater challenge. Uh, So even now, begin to pray about that campaign, should there be sufficient signatures approved, and what role, if any, you might play in that uh, that process. So a couple of things to to consider. Okay, we're going to uh, sign off for the day. James Blend is our engineer and producer for today's program. I want to thank him for his efforts, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.